0: Previously on Flying the Line, Southern Airways goes to war with its pilots and takes strike breaking to a new low by hiring unqualified pilots. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 18. The Southern Airways Strike of 1960. Part 2. The 1960 strike broke out at a bad time for ALPA. The dispute with the Flight Engineers International Association, which was a rival union trying to organize flight engineers, was in full swing. The major airlines were gearing up to resist ALPA under their mutual aid pact, which stated they would support each other financially during a strike. And finally, the hidden contempt toward ALPA President Clancy Sayan by a substantial minority of the ALPA membership was about to emerge. The financial burden of supporting Southern Airways striking pilots was heavy enough to exacerbate other problems. One of the reasons the strike cost so much was an ill-advised attempt to compete directly with Southern Airways by running a rival airline. Superior Airlines, as the Alpa-sponsored outfit called itself, was an absolutely unique experiment in modern labor disputes. Superior operated eight-passenger de Havilland doves in direct competition with Southern Airways' most profitable routes and departure times. It capitalized on public apprehension about Hulse's strikebreakers, something that was much in the news by March 1961, owing to the Houlihan case and a couple of non-fatal accidents involving scabs. Offering free champagne and intensely personal service, superior airlines tried to keep ALPA's case before the public. Nearly all of Superior's employees, whether they were driving baggage trucks or taking tickets, were striking pilots. Although technically the airline's president was an Indiana fixed-based operator named Willard Rusk, it was an open secret that ALPA financed the venture. After losing nearly a million dollars, ALPA shut down the operation in March 1962, although it hung on to the de Havilland doves until United's Scotty Devine sold them when he became ALPA treasurer in June 1962. In retrospect, Devine said the operation of Superior Airlines was an expensive error. A lot of the association's total expenditure for the strike came from trying to run that airline. And it didn't have much effect on the settlement of the strike either. Clancy Sayon was forced to try direct competition with Holse because of a series of adverse court and civil aeronautics board rulings. Initially, Sayon hoped that the threat of a boycott of all airports serving Southern Airways would end the strike. There was substantial sentiment among the pilots of several airlines, to simply refuse to fly into any picketed airport. The courts squelched this approach. The other avenue lay in Alba's claim that the airline had bargained unfairly by injecting into negotiations a demand that ringleaders in the strike be disciplined. This was clearly illegal under the terms of the Railway Labor Act. But in September 1961, Civil Aeronautics Board Examiner William Cusick ruled in Frank Holse's favor, dismissing ALPA's claims of unfair bargaining. As far as Cusick was concerned, the strike was now over, and the strikers were permanently out. ALPA promptly appealed Cusick's ruling to the full board. Eventually, this appeal would lead to the defeat of Frank Holse nearly two years later but this story contains another one that involved politics at the highest level. The Southern Airways strikers had jumped into national politics by publicly endorsing John F. Kennedy during the 1960 presidential election. JFK was inclined to support them, but he had a few other things to contend with, like the possibility of World War III. Until vacancies occurred at the Civil Aeronautics Board, it would continue to have a 3-2 to two Republican majority that had already shown itself to be hostile to ALPA in the strike. Everything depended on JFK's appointments to the board, and JFK owed his election to organized labor. So ALPA would now benefit from the AFL-CIO connection, as it had so many times in the past. The unsung hero of the successful campaign to put a pro-labor member on the Civil Aeronautics Board was a non-pilot named Charlie Overholt. Having a pro-labor member would shift the five-member board's majority in favor of the strikers. Early in the strike, San approved a request by the Memphis-based pilots of Southern Airways to put Overholt on their payroll as a publicist. He had worked for the Memphis Union News, a local AFL-CIO newspaper, so he knew labor's ropes well. Overholt's job was to run what the strikers labeled the Labor Contact Program to line up labor support. It was entirely the idea of Jim Harper, the quiet, calm chairman of the Memphis Council, and it paid handsome dividends in terms of national support. Before Overholt was through, Practically every labor organization in America, except the Teamsters, had applied pressure in support of the strikers. No one will ever be able to measure the impact of organized labor's combined pressure on Congress and the President. If the pressure had not been constant and heavy, perhaps JFK might have tried to placate the business community with his Civil Aeronautics Board appointment. Sacrificing a union local with a mere 140 members would be a small price to pay for the better relations with businessmen. AFL-CIO pressure prevented it. The problem on the Civil Aeronautics Board was that one of the Democrats, Alan Boyd, had previously proven hostile to the interests of organized labor. In February 1961, When JFK made his first appointment, he named Robert Murphy a Rhode Island attorney, thus creating a 3-2 Democratic majority. Murphy was a Senate staff member, and political insiders said he was a good choice for ALPA, since Murphy was well-regarded by the Rhode Island AFL-CIO. So JFK had made a good appointment but a great deal still depended upon the pressure he placed on Alan Boyd. That's why the labor contact program was so important. JFK had to feel pressure from organized labor so that he would, in turn, pressure Boyd, whom he had recently appointed chairman. It was at that point that the appeal of the anti-ALPA ruling was taking place. The Fine Singer Commission, named for Professor Nathan Feinsinger of the University of Chicago, was created by President Kennedy to investigate the crew complement dispute among ALPA, FEIA, and the airlines. Secretary of Labor Arthur Goldberg had been responsible for JFK's selection of Feinsinger to head the President's Commission on the Airlines controversy. Because of the intense political pressure from Mike Monroney, the Democratic senator from Oklahoma, JFK agreed to place the Southern Airways strike within the jurisdiction of the Feinsinger Commission. Finally, the Feinsinger Commission got around to hearing the striker's case in March 1962. The airline's principal witness was Earl Phillips, the attorney whose stubbornness as a negotiator had created the strike in the first place. Phillips was obviously at pains to dodge key questions about subsidy payments to the airline from the Civil Aeronautics Board. Eventually, under the patient questioning of Feinsinger, Phillips was forced to admit that since the strike began, the board had paid the airline over $9 million, or over $77 million today. That sum staggered Feinsinger who wanted to know what effect these taxpayers' dollars had on Southern Airways' ability to withstand the strike. Plenty, as it turned out. The board's chief counsel admitted under Henry Weiss's cross-examination that it simply did not know how much went for strike-breaking. There was no itemized breakdown of strike expenses or maintenance, according to the board's lawyer. How Frank Holt spent the taxpayer's money was none of the board's business, the lawyer insisted, so long as he rendered honest and efficient service. And with that, the hearing turned against Southern Airways and its management. The Feinsinger Commission provided all the factual information that would be necessary to overturn the finding made by the Civil Aeronautics Board Examiner Cusick in 1960. The board finally considered ALPA's appeal of Cusick's decision in May 1962, almost two years into the strike. The outcome was by no means a foregone conclusion. Although JFK had appointed people who were known to be pro-labor, once they were seated, he had no further control over them. By overturning Cusick's findings, the board would set a new precedent. Never before had the Civil Aeronautics Board invoked its legal powers to determine whether an airline had bargained in good faith. In its final decision, the board noted that management's prompt hiring of strikebreakers was evidence enough of bad faith on the airline's part. When the striking pilots had settled all outstanding disputes and were ready to return to work, they were prevented from doing so by Frank Holse's insistence on the right to discipline strike leaders and to deprive them of seniority. The board said flatly that the demands of Southern, relating to seniority, were illegal, for they contributed to the prolongation of the dispute in direct defiance of the 1926 Railway Labor Act. The crucial ruling was made along straight party lines with Democrats Boyd, Murphy, and Minetti voting in favor, and Republicans Gurney and Gilliland voting no. Despite this favorable ruling, the issue was not yet firmly decided. ALPA promptly appealed the Civil Aeronautics Board decision to the courts. The reason for this apparent anomaly was that it was feared that the airline's lawyers would appeal it and ALPA wanted to place it under the jurisdiction of a judge more sympathetic to organized labor than the Southern judge that Holst's attorneys would likely choose. The court that receives an appeal first has jurisdiction. ALPA had one ace left in the hole, one that would eventually induce Holse to surrender. Midway in the course of the strike, somebody mentioned to Clancy saying that alpa had spent nearly enough on the strike to buy southern airways in fact the dollar value of the airline's outstanding stock wasn't much more than the 2 million dollars alpa had already spent so why not buy it the stock price on the open market was quite low in 1961 owing to holse's purchase of a fleet of second hand martin 404s on credit Southern Airways was also just that much more vulnerable to the board's threat to cut off its subsidy. And this weakness gave ALPA's national leaders the idea of buying up stock to pressure Holse further for a speedy settlement. The stock purchase program was the brainchild of Memphis Council Chairman Jim Harper. Originally, its purpose was to get striking pilots who were already holders of token amounts of the stock into the stockholders' meeting to raise a little hell. Under Clancy Sayan, this token purchasing program became quite another matter. Using various fronts to disguise the stock acquisition program, ALPA eventually accumulated about 22% of all the airline's common stock, enough to threaten Hulse's control of his own airline. Hulse awakened to this threat simultaneously with the Civil Aeronautics Board ruling against him, when a Baltimore investment group holding nearly 30% of Southern Airways's common stock approached ALPA's new president, Charles Ruby, and treasurer Scotty Devine about a deal. Holse was beaten now, and he knew it, so he gave up. There would be no more trouble, he let it be known, if ALPA would agree to sell him its stock at market value. There would be no repeat of the post-strike hassles that the National Airlines pilots experienced in 1948. He would throw the strikebreakers to the wolves, accepting only that they would come to work for him at the bottom of the seniority list when openings became available. Holse was, in short, following the historical pattern of businessmen who make promises to scab pilots. The promises were good only so long as they were convenient. They were now on their own, and nothing they could do would save their jobs. They tried forming their own union and filing suit against the Civil Aeronautics Board, just like the National Airline strikebreakers had done in 1948. It didn't work for them either. And so, the longest strike in ALPA's history was over. The majority of the luckless scabs would never work for the airline again despite Holse's earlier promises. Those few who managed to remain on its payroll must surely take small comfort that the high salaries they ultimately enjoyed were bought with the sweat and anguish of others. Alba fought the Southern Airways' strike like there was no tomorrow. Something much more important was at stake than just a small strike at a small airline. In a sense... The two-year strike was the Magna Carta of ALPA's wage policy, and the struggle the strikers waged in those years has paid dividends ever since for pilots at regional airlines. Next time on Flying the Line, the 1960 election of President John F. Kennedy opened new doors for labor in both aviation and other industries and the promise of a new age spawns new ambitions for leaders and politicians alike. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 18 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line Podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpha 2020, all rights reserved.